care for us, you love us, though we are even but a measure aware of our own sin, our own weaknesses and frailties, and yet you pour your love upon us in and through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for being a God who hears us when we call out to you, for giving us your word, which is a sure, steady guide to help us know you, the one true God, Jesus Christ, whom you sent. So we can know ourselves and know that you are mindful of us and take thought of us, so we can understand how we can be forgiven of our sin, not by anything that we do, but wholly and entirely by trusting in your Son who paid the debt for our sin on the cross. We thank you also that your word is a guide that helps us now understand how we are to live this Christian life, how we can love you and love others, be used by you as witnesses, that we're here on this earth not walking about aimlessly, wandering, shows us the path on which we should walk. And Lord, even as we're going to see tonight, sometimes that path is dark, challenging, filled with trial and tribulation. And yet you don't leave us nor forsake us. You're with us. So Lord, be our guide and teacher. Receive honor and glory. Help us tonight. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Psalm 119, in our series, The Glory of God's Word, our title tonight would be Hope Amid Despair. We come to verses 81 through 88, which is a, a unique section in Psalm 119, unique in how it stands out with it, its honesty its intensity. In fact, I think this section in particular is a helpful reminder of what Calvin, John Calvin, meant when he said this about the Psalms as a whole. Sort of a famous saying of Calvin, if you've ever read through the Psalms or used his commentaries, he said, the book of Psalms, it's like the anatomy of the soul. That when you come to the Psalms and you open it up, it's, it's almost opening up our own hearts to us. He said, all the sorrows, troubles, fears, doubts, hopes, pains, perplexities, stormy outbreaks by which the hearts of men are tossed, have been here depicted by the Holy Spirit to the very life. In other words, Psalm, the book of Psalms, Psalm 119, and this section in particular, verses 81 through 88, it helps us and it shows us the Bible was not written in a vacuum. That the psalmist, when he wrote this, he wasn't in some sterile clinical laboratory far removed from everyday life. Well, the path here in this section, as we'll walk through it tonight, it, it, it reflects things you and I walk through, emotions you and I have, perhaps even tonight. 
how often life, though we know God's word is true and we know that God is sovereign and we seek to live faithfully for him, life can be like a roller coaster. Meaning there are ups and there are downs. And sometimes that descent downward keeps going downward. There are highs and lows. There are good days. There are bad days, good weeks, bad weeks. In fact, even in just one day, have you ever experienced this? It was a good morning. And then I don't know what happened. The rest of the day gets challenging and difficult. But things can swing. That's what the psalmist is dealing with in this section. It's the 11th section. Again, following the pattern of the Hebrew alphabet, you got 22 letters. Here we come to the letter Kaf, the 11th letter. Almost then, we're, we're really, as we walk through this section, coming through the very middle, halfway point of Psalm 119. And to think of it visually, again, we're sitting here tonight, close here with one another. In fact, at the end, we'll have a little bit of interaction, just like last time. Think of it like this, Psalm 119 begins at one point, and like the letter V, how it goes down, and what? Goes back up, right? Is that how we learned how to write the letter V? I think so. Our section tonight, it's as if we've reached the very bottom before finally turning to go back up. Spurgeon of this section called it the midnight of Psalm 119. In fact, to further draw us in, a contemporary pastor, Brian Borgman, in a very helpful book on Psalm 119, to kind of lure us and draw us in tonight of, of why even we ought to be all ears to walk with the psalmist through this section. He described it like this, exhausted, spent, done, languishing, brittle and about to shatter. Sometimes this is what life feels like. We want to love the Lord and walk in obedience with vibrant faith, but we feel like we're at the breaking point. The psalmist was there in this stanza. That's, that's what it is. It's like he's at the breaking point. If you change the imagery a little bit, it's like he's almost burnt out. Maybe you've experienced something like that. Again, maybe the, the intensities, the demands of work have so been impressed upon you and now, though for all the blessings of having smartphones, now since you have this, your work knows that even when you head home, are you really off the clock? For many, no. Still accessible, can't shut it down, can't get an escape and just get a moment to reset and recharge. I look out, I know there are many moms here in the room tonight. Many of you... The challenges of what it is to have a child, to carry the child, to bring that child into the world, and, and all the challenges that can come with that. For even inside, there, there's uh, challenging thoughts, challenging emotions. Take the average person maybe reaching what the world typically calls what the midlife crisis. 
where suddenly it's like things are spinning. What have I been doing up to my point in this life? And there can be despair. There can be this temptation towards burnout. You could be, like Borgman says, facing the breaking point. That could be you here tonight, or good for us to remember James chapter 1. It's not if, but when we're going to be facing trials. Sometimes those trials so very personal. Good even for us tonight to be prepared to take in some preventative medicine that we might be forewarned and forearmed if we come to a place like this. Again, aren't we thankful that God has given us a book like this that's honest? And it shows us how to be honest and yet keeps directing us back to God or as our title tells us, that there can be and there is hope amid despair. I think it would be good for us to read through this section. That way we can hear it before we start our journey through it. You got your Bibles open, I trust. Psalm 119 open in front of you. Verses 81 through 88. Again, the halfway point in this psalm. The psalmist writes, My soul languishes for your salvation. I wait for your word. My eyes fail with longing for your word while I say, when will you comfort me? Though I've become like a wineskin in the smoke, I do not forget your statutes. How many are the days of your servant? When will you execute judgment on those who persecute me? The arrogant have dug pits for me, men who are not in accord with your law. All your commandments are faithful. They have persecuted me with a lie. Help me. They almost destroyed me on earth. But as for me... I did not forsake your precepts. Revive me according to your loving kindness so that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. Let's join the psalmist and walk through this section tonight. Hope amid despair. In verses 81 through 83, we'll label the first portion of this psalm private turmoil. Probably saw you're picking up in these verses the psalmist again, whether it be in his private diary, in his own inward thoughts. It's as if he's not necessarily around other people, opening up to them, but he alone hears what's going on inside. Intense, agonizing, private turmoil. You see that. As the section begins in verse 81, where he says, My soul, speaking of his inward self, my soul languishes for your salvation. An interesting word, it can mean uh, at my limit, to reach my end, even to cease, to be finished. Just from that one word, it's that thought. I, I'm at my limit. I'm at my breaking point. I, I've 
I can't handle it anymore. I can't go any further. God, if you don't help me, this is it. That's what he feels. That's what he's thinking. In fact, that very intense word, three times it's used in this psalm. Obviously, verse 81, where he's speaking of his soul. If you look to verse 82, where it says, my eyes fail, same term. Inwardly, he's straining with his eyes and his vision, with all he sees and what he's taking in. He's languishing. He's reaching his limit. In fact, it's repeated again a third time in verse 87, speaking later of how others are treating him. There's no filter here, you know, Instagram filter, polishing it, making it look perfect and pristine. He's not going about acting as if, well, everything's fine. You know how we can sometimes do that. We have a smile. Someone asks us, how are you doing? And what's the typical response? Fine. Good. Thank you. But what the smile might be hiding, deep sadness inside, intense suffering. That's what's going on. While that's going on, though, note he, he's looking to the Lord. He's asking for God to intervene when he speaks there of your salvation. Don't necessarily think of it like salvation from sin or salvation from hell. Just substitute the word deliverance. As if I'm in a trial, Lord, Will you please bring me out of it or remove it? It's intense, and yet he looks to God. He says, I wait for your word. I hope for your word. That's the one thing that he has that he's, he's holding on to and that's sustaining him. Again, we don't know the exact circumstance. We don't even know the exact author. It's anonymous and general, which allows it to, in a way, be uh, many sizes, you know, fitting all, helping us out no matter what it is we might be walking through. He's here modeling that hope and that confident expectation, knowing that God hears and knowing that God can help him. But again, it continues, this private turmoil, verse 82, my eyes, again, fail, they languish with longing for your word. He's even asking himself these questions and directing them to God. When will you comfort me? Like so many other places in the Psalter where we can see it's okay to direct questions to God, not in a, in a proud or angry way, but in a confused and perplexed, Lord, I don't know what's going on. Will you help me and will you comfort me? Again, it, it adds to the intensity. You move to verse 83. He's now speaking of himself. I've become like a wineskin in the smoke. 
it said that in the ancient world, you know, instead of having their, uh, what, Stanley or Yeti or whatever other popular water bottle that people use these days, they'd kill an animal, they'd take the skin, they'd carefully prepare it, and then it would be this useful pouch that they could fill it with liquids, perhaps water, perhaps wine, whatever it is that they need as they're going about there in, in a world and in a climate that would be intense. And it would be used often, but sometimes if it's not used, then it would be set next to the fire and it would begin to be exposed to the elements. The smoke would be rising up. The smoke could even begin to contaminate it. Or I think really the imagery, it begins to wear it out, dry it out so it's brittle and it's going to crack and break and then be useless. He's saying, God, I, f I feel like that right now. I'm shriveled and charred. That's what he's feeling inwardly. And you know this. Often those inward, even spiritual challenges we walk through, they, they begin to impact us physically. Spiritually, these things take a toll, and then physically they begin to take a toll. Even other places in the scripture, we see the, the experience of someone not able to sleep, not able to get a good night's rest, and the compounding effect of that. Someone, because of the outward intensities, they're, they're sick inside to their stomach in knots because of prolonged anxiety, that even leading to what? Further physical issues, uh, digestive problems. The imagery here even being worn out and shriveled, how that outward trial, it, maybe it's even taking an effect. Someone walks up and looks at the person and it looks like life is zapped out of them. I mean, often that's what prompts the question. How are you doing? Others can see something's off. The face is worn, the face ages, the countenance is fallen, and it stays fallen. That's this psalmist, and yet amidst this private turmoil, what is he clinging to? I do not forget your statutes. What a testimony. And even not forgetting, it's not just, you know, oh, I, I forgot what happened earlier today, things that come in and out of the mind. It's a stronger word than that. It's, it's the whole soul, the will involved. He's determined with all that he is and all that he has. God, I'm clinging to what your word says. I believe it. I trust it because I believe you and I trust you and I'm asking you, when will you help and comfort me? Sweet even, amidst his grief, he's not running away from God. That happens. Maybe you know of someone who walked through such an intense trial 
they experiencing intense suffering, and that seemed to be a prompt for them to just walk away from it all. Faces come to mind. People that we know and love maybe once walked alongside, but the psalmist, not him. Oh, that begins to give us some hope. We might then wonder, okay, what, what exactly is going on? Well, it moves from the private out into the public. You now have public trial. Even public turmoil. He says in verse 84, more questions rise up to God. How many are the days of your servant? When will you execute judgment on those who persecute me? This is where it really begins to get dark. Taking verse 84, he asks, how many are the days of your servant? And I think it's helpful for us to take that with that second question. Not that he's stopping and asking God, God, how much time are you going to give me on this earth? But it's as if he's saying, God, how long is this trial going to last? Is there hope? Is there relief? Like I said, this is where it might be the darkest because here for the first time in Psalm 119, the glory of God's word, God's word is absent and missing from this verse. Everything leading up to this, God's word, or one of the many synonyms that we've seen all throughout, commandments, statutes, precepts, etc., either is explicitly in the text or very clearly implied. But suddenly here, it's absent. And he's facing threat of those persecuting him. In fact, maybe even good for us to realize the psalmist here being the example, godliness is like a magnet for godlessness. If in your heart you're seeking to live faithfully for the Lord, inevitably that's going to draw those who oppose you and threaten you and will try to do you harm. That's what he's experiencing. He's even looking to God, asking God, they are wicked, they are hurting me, when will you bring about Righteous judgment. When they will righteously receive what's due. And he, he asks God these questions. We can do that to God. As Charles Bridges said, it, it's okay to complain to God. But it's not okay for us to complain about God. Catch the difference? All that he's walking through, the intensity of it, he's opening up and he's voicing it to God. I think even in a, in a humble, godly way, though perplexed, that's okay. Instead of the opposite, going about with fists raised in anger against God. Again, not that we would be tempted to that or should be tempted to that. God is never one to wrong us. He is one who always is good and does good. 
we ought to feel some sympathy here for this psalmist. How bad is it getting? It's as if the wild animals are after him. Or thinking that he is some animal and they're like the hunters setting traps to capture him. We're introduced to them, given a little bit more of a picture of who they are. Verse 85, the arrogant, they've dug pits for me. Again, God, they've, they've set about all these traps everywhere I go. I'm having to be careful with what I say, with how I act, with who I associate with, with what I post, you name it. They're there ready to pounce on me. And they're arrogant. Why? They're those who are not in accord with your law. There are people like that out there. You know, even in our, our Christian circles, we rightly ought to, you know, our default be trusting towards people and, and we believe the best and hope the best about people. But inevitably, we begin to rub shoulders as we're on this earth with those that just to the core with what they say, they're unethical, unprincipled, unrighteous, ungodly clearly going against what God says is right and what God says is wrong. In fact, step further, verse 86, they're spreading about lies. There's a campaign abroad of falsehoods. Sorry, that makes me think of fake news. Not in a political sense, but here in a legitimate sense. Oh, there's fake news about the psalmist. And what is he to do? It's as if the majority is against him. We can't help but think how there are examples of that today. Good, righteous, godly Christians. And something's put out and it's a blatant lie. And even the person spreading it, they know that it's a lie. But what? It's going to get attraction. It's going to get clicks and it's going to be shared. It's going to get likes. It's going to get some internet activity. You might see another person walk through it, but oh, what if, what if it's you walking through it? They've persecuted me. Note, even amidst this public turmoil, where is the psalmist looking? He's looking to God. What does he know? What does he believe? What is he clinging to? Verse 86, all your commandments are faithful. God, all around me are lies, but your word is trustworthy. I approach it, Lord, and I don't have to read the Bible with discernment. I don't have to come to it. I'm going to eat the meat and spit out the bones. You know, a good reminder for us, when we approach this, the word reflects the character of its author. God is right. God is true. God is faithful and trustworthy, right? His word is going to reflect the same thing. Here's the perfection of faithfulness. 
In fact, I, I love this because it's, it's, oh, truth that's repeated later in the New Testament. You think of what Paul says, all scripture is breathed out by God. Jesus himself saying the scripture cannot be broken. Jesus saying not one jot or iota can fail. The whole universe will fail and pass away before God's word would fail. Here's the psalmist saying that same truth. You could label it, it's infallible. Not only is it inerrant that it has no error, it's infallible. It could never lead me into error. It could never lead me into wrong. It, it in no way can deceive me. Because through and through it's true and faithful and unfailing. By the way, did you catch the short prayer that he throws up to the Lord? End of verse 86. Sometimes, sometimes the best prayer we can offer is brief. Help me. Sometimes we don't even know what to pray. But certainly we can pray, help me. Verse 88, he's going to say, revive me. Elsewhere we read, teach me. Forgive me. Even the words of one facing death, remember me. Oh, it's intense. Verse 87, they almost destroyed me. Same word from verse 81, same word from verse 82. I'm about at my limit. They've almost taken my life here on this earth. But oh Lord, though I'm facing that, as for me, I did not forsake your precepts. He would not compromise. Third and finally, leads us into that last statement, personal trust. You see, it's been building. Verse 81 ends, I wait for your word. Verse 83 ends, I don't forget your statutes. Verse 87 ends, I did not forsake your precepts. And so what does he then offer up to the Lord as he continues in his prayer? Revive me, Lord, according to your loving kindness. And that rich, wonderful Old Testament word of God's loyal, faithful covenant love for his covenant people. He said, God, on the basis of that, will you not bring me to life, revitalize me, put back life and vitality in my soul? And why does he ask it? That I may keep the testimony of your mouth. Oh, what personal trust. And again, note how he says, the testimony of your mouth. Oh, the, the word that he's clinging to, it, it is that very word breathed out by God. That he knows from Deuteronomy 8, man shall 
not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That even sets us up. It's like light at the end of the tunnel. But even into the next section, as the psalmist moves forward, the light will grow brighter and brighter. Maybe you're on a similar path as the psalmist. If so, let's take in and learn from his example. In fact, what can we learn from this? Several things. First, we'll label this. We see two sides of prayer. I don't know if you noticed, but as you go through each verse, it's like the psalmist alternates between telling God his problem to then asking God for help. what our prayers ought to be. He tells God his problems. Note verse 81, 83, 85, 87. Opening up, not holding it in, but communicating with God and telling him what it is he's walking through. And yes, the psalmist knows that God knows, but he doesn't stay silent about it. He pours out his heart to God. And then he asks God for help. 82, when will you comfort me? 84, how many are the days of your servant? When will you execute judgment on those who persecute me? 86, help me. 88, revive me. That's good for us to learn. Maybe we're more prone to do one, but we forget the other. Times that I catch myself, maybe I'm asking God for help, but I have to stop and realize I haven't even humbly opened up about all that's going on to the Lord. My heart is weighed down. My heart is heavy. I need to tell God that. In a similar way, how a parent can look and know his child is weighed down and has difficult things going on. But is ready and even eager to hear the child open up so the parent can listen. And as the child opens up, then it's as if the burden begins to be removed. We can learn that from this psalm. We've seen it already the trustworthiness of God's truth. When all, the, all around the world gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. He and his word. Good, right, true, trustworthy. Even to approach it with just simple childlike faith. If God has said it, of course I'm going to believe it cling to it. 
Good for us also to learn true faith may faint, but it will never fail. And sometimes we might walk through a difficult path like this, and we, we can begin to look inward, and we grow discouraged, and we think, I, I, I thought I was further along in the Christian life. Why do I have these emotions? I've never had them before. And yet we look at this psalmist and we realize that this is part of the Christian life. This happens. That we can grow weak to the point of fainting and yet praise God. The psalmist keeps going. He's lifted up. He's sustained. His faith doesn't ultimately fail. We see it also in Psalm 13 with David, Psalm 42 and 43, even Psalm 88, the darkest psalm, where just the opening word as he looks to God gives hope. Does it remind you as well from the New Testament? words Jesus said to one of his disciples. Simon, Simon, Satan's demanded to sift you like wheat. But what did Jesus say? But I prayed for you that your faith will not fail. Do we serve the same Savior? Do you think he prays that for us as well? Yes and amen. In fact, that can often be the time while we're fainting to offer up that brief prayer to God. Makes me think of the scene, maybe you've read it. If not, you ought to read it. The wonderful kids series, Chronicles of Narnia. It seems like for a lot of people, their favorite book is The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Some of you maybe have read that. Great read, wonderful. Maybe you remember the scene. If not, they're all on this boat. They're trying to sail to the very edge of the world. The main characters, you got Edmund, Lucy, their uh, relative Eustace, and they're with King Caspian, all of them sailing. And as they're sailing, they come to this place where suddenly it begins to get very, very dark all around them. They hear someone scream clearly out in the water. What do they do? They do all they can to rescue this person. They bring him aboard, and they're taken aback when they see this figure. He looks ghostly and ghastly, weak and frail. He begins to tell them how he had been stuck there for some time, and they're wondering, what, what is this place? Why is it even all dark? And he begins to tell them, this, this is the dark island. This is the place where all your dreams can come true. And he repeats that several times, and it begins to hit, and it dawns upon Caspian and Lucy and Edmund and Eustace and all the other characters Dreams can come true, and Lewis says, yes, the, the dreams that 
you wake up and you're afraid to go back to sleep. Really, in other words, talking about nightmares. And suddenly then it begins to dawn on them as they try to make their way out from that place. They're not making any progress. They're stuck with all that darkness around them. And they then inwardly beginning to experience toil and trial and intensity just like the psalmist here. And each one of them, their own unique things they're scared about and they're being tested by. The screams and the cries going up. Do you remember the scene? Little Lucy, in that very dark moment of despair, whispers, Aslan, Aslan, if ever you loved us, help us now. She's offering up this brief, simple prayer. Suddenly they notice there's a light that comes and it begins to then surround their boat. The darkness doesn't disappear, but there's light around them. And a word comes from Aslan and they then make their way out to safety. I think that wonderfully illustrates this psalm and what the psalmist walks through. They're at the point of fainting, but they don't ultimately fail. The darkness around them didn't immediately disappear. It was still there. But they had a light that sustained them. Much like the light of God's word. One more truth I think we learned from this psalm before we open it up for some application questions. You know, walking through it, we don't even know who this psalmist is, but such intense things that he is honest about. Reading through it, couldn't help but think some of these statements sound eerily similar to those made even by our own Savior. It's good for us to remember Our Savior walked the psalmist's path. That our Lord Jesus Christ, when he came to this earth, he he remained what he was and he assumed what he was not. That in the mystery of the incarnation, when Jesus was born, he was born really, truly as a human And thus, for all of his earthly life and ministry, ultimately marching towards the cross, he lives this life of faith that we're called to. Isn't that what the author of Hebrews tells us? Hebrews chapter 12, 1 and 2, that he's the author and the perfecter of faith. Author, you could substitute the word captain, champion, even pioneer. The one who goes before enabling us to then follow in his steps. That he walking on this earth, he's made like his brethren in all things, Hebrews chapter 2 tells us. How he learned obedience. 
As Luke 2.52 tells us that he grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and in favor with man. He grew in faith. He grew in his trust. If not, as Ian Hamilton would say, his humanity was simply a charade. He didn't just cruise to glory. In the mystery of his holy humanity, that he even, as Psalm 22 would tell us, reaching that point of mystery, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He never calls us to walk a path he has not first walked. And praise God, he gives us grace and mercy to help in time of need that our faith can grow and be strengthened that we then can follow the example in his steps. That's Psalm 119, 81 through 88. Why don't we open it up for a few questions? First tonight, thinking specifically of despair, what do we assume that can contribute to despair? What I mean by that, maybe lies that we believe, things that we assume that feed and lead to that despair. Dave Blackburn. song. Nobody knows my trouble. But who knows? God knows. As the song will continue. Jesus knows. But certainly others know. That's a really real thing that we can begin to think. Makes me think of 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. We gotta unmask that lie. We're not alone. Others have walked through similar challenges. What other things might we believe or assume that can contribute to that despair? In the back, yes, I'll sway. saw that tonight, the psalmist asking God, when, when will this end? As if he's thinking, Lord, I don't know if it ever will. Question, will our trials ever end? Big picture? Yes, they will. In fact, that's one of the reasons heaven ought to be such a great hope and thing we long for. There will then be the absence of sin, sorrow, suffering, and sickness. A real hope that we have. What else? 
John, yes. begin to think we want to be God's counselor. God, now's the time that you need to end this. It really would be better. But no, could it be that in that he's teaching us? In fact, even the most simple lesson that we are not God, but we need him and we're to be dependent upon him. In fact, trials do that. They keep us in that very intense place of dependence. And yes, it's painful, and yes, it's challenging, and it can be draining. But in that place of dependence, is there any place we ought rather be than leaning upon the Lord and recognizing, God, I I need you with all that I am and all that I have? As I I was reflecting on it, it made me think as well, maybe we think, well, it all depends on me. I mean, I'm the one who has to keep all these things in motion. If things are going to be done and accomplished, take it at home, all the projects, all the things, it's all on me. Take it with ministry. If things are going to happen, it all depends upon me. And yet, does it all depend upon us? No. But if we have that mindset and even close with it, it, it's got to be perfect. It has to be the way I think and expect it. Well, if that's our perspective, inevitably, what's going to happen? We're going to find ourselves in this spot in despair. Not only that, we can forget some things that contribute then to despair. What might we forget? Or we're just not mindful of that brings us to that place of despair. By the way, if somehow I forget your name, just know it's happened before in another setting. And it just means tonight there will be more people to laugh at me. We'll be okay. What what might we forget that leads to despair? Yes, Brianna. We can pass the test. God is sovereign over all things. But then practically in life, when there's some teeth to it, well, that, that's the place where we really have to humbly bow and acknowledge, yes, you are sovereign. Good to remember as well, you're most wise and most good. That's a perfect sovereignty that orchestrates our lives. Anything else? Ooh, more hands now. Look at that. Something's happening here tonight. It's contagious. Uh, Carrie, we'll go with you.
knows best and he does best and sometimes that no even through that he's growing us Brighton you had your hand up and good to bring those together as you did his glory is our good and as we see that and we understand that we inside can humbly Submit to that and rejoice in that. One more hand. Yes. Life in a fallen world. We don't say that tongue in cheek, but that is a reality. We're not in paradise. We're not in a new heavens, a new earth. Christians aren't exempt from that. It's part and parcel of this world. There will be suffering. Maybe think as well, maybe we forget our creatureliness, meaning we forget that we're finite. We begin to get tricked just because we have access to so much more, the ability to see all the news. We get tricked into a, a fake human omniscience and omnipresence. And suddenly we're realizing we're taking more upon us than we really are able to handle. We weren't made to be all-knowing and present in all places. Not able to handle all that knowledge and exposure. Heck, even practically, we're not energizer bunnies made to run 24-7. I mean, isn't that another lie we can begin to believe? That my worth is equated with my productivity? That only what I'm able to do and contribute, that that's my worth and value? Oh, let's be aware of that. Another, how can we prepare? I know that's kind of gloomy. Prepare for despair. I simply mean be ready and as best as we can to be on guard to prevent it. Why? We're in a world filled with suffering. We can walk through these same things. What do you think can help us be armed and ready for that? PGA golfer Drew Walker. To be in his word, yes. Modeling the example of the psalmist here. It ought to be that pattern that we're in the word so that when things are difficult, we're already in that habit and groove of clinging to God's word. Absolutely. I think there was a hand somewhere over here. Michael. Prayer, yes. Acknowledging our dependence. Acknowledging our help and need, right? Again, these aren't just throwaway answers. These are things that we need, the, the meat and potatoes of our Christian life, the word and prayer. 
Can we think of one more? Kristen? What might be a good place where that could happen? I'm trying to think of some, like, you know, regular kind of organized gathering. What would that be? Church, that's right. It's as if God has wisdom in how that's all orchestrated. Absolutely. To be surrounded with other believers regularly. And what do you think comes from that as we're around other believers? How can we be helped in that? Accountability, yeah. What else? Kristen again? Absolutely. And through that we learn, through that God uses that to grow us. In fact, I think there's a book uh, title kind of escapes me. Something like, something about the morning. Hope in the morning. That very thing illustrating how other believers walking through trials, we can learn from that, grow from that. Absolutely. Good opportunity for us to plug the, the need for prayer, for being in the word, and for fellowship. God uses all of that when things are well, to help prepare us for when things are challenging. Let's do the opposite of this, though. Think if others are in despair or they're walking through suffering, like this clicker not working right now. Sorry. How can we help others in despair? In other words, what role does the church play? Linda. To be transparent, what character quality enables, I think, that transparency? Humility. Absolutely. The more we're humble, the more we're willing to open up and acknowledge, listen, things are hard right now. I need help. How else? Listen to others. That's important. Not that we suddenly jump into a situation, you know, I'm Mr. Fix-It, I got the answer, here's what you need to do, slap a Band-Aid on it. But even to listen, that in and of itself can be a ministry, showing even that we care truly about somebody. Absolutely right, Leslie. Can you think of any others? Tim. Good opportunity even for us, not just that we're praying for ourselves, but turning attention away from ourselves to pray for others. Maybe one more. Carrie again. Loving one another, not just in 
word and tongue, but in deed and truth. That's First John 3 says, absolutely. And you know, we'll be honest with you, you experience it, we're in the midst of it. Our church is growing, many new faces here. Praise God for that, people wanting to come and hear God's word. But as a church grows, it can become more and more easy to kind of fade back or be anonymous. And yet if we do that, we're beginning to miss out on these very things that can help us or even us be in a spot to help others. We'll add another plug, all the more the importance of something like care groups. They're a great place and opportunity for us to open up, be transparent, share what's going on, pray for one another, practical opportunities of how we can help and do good to each other, cultivating real, genuine relationships. Even through that, we're bearing one another's burdens so people don't totally sink down into despair. Well, we have more, more to learn and more to take in in our study. But now that we've just passed midnight in this psalm, let's ask for God's help. We'll pray, and then we're going to sing one final song. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our study tonight. Lord, you know the help that we need, and you've positioned us to be able to help others who are in need. So God, thank you for giving us grace and help. More and more strengthen us as a church body to be ready to minister to one another no matter what we walk through. Longing even for the day where we will all be with you with no more tears. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand as you're able to. Thank you.